It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. Today's topic is not necessarily something brand new. It is something that Jason and I have been fired up on about for a while now. I mean, I feel like this really hits home for us. And there's a semi-different angle that I want to start with and just see where this goes. I know I'm being very vague, but uh, I'll just begin with the inspiration. So I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this is getting bombarded with emails from random people who seem to want something from you. And sometimes the way that people approach you when they want something from you is to make it sound like there's something in it for you. And that's just part of marketing. That's, that's how things work. It's like, ooh, like let's wave this shiny thing in somebody's face to entice them and maybe kind of skirt away from the fact that this is really more about us than them. And I'm really sensitive to things like that, right? Because I feel like I'm very drawn to authenticity in general, which will be a big part of this conversation as well, and very turned off when it feels like somebody's just trying to get something from me or manipulate me or take advantage of me. A lot of those different feelings. And I received a a few emails this week, and this is not quite unusual, but it just really got me thinking. So I believe one of them, let me see what the dates are on here. Actually, a few of them came on the same day from different people. And one of them was like, the subject line kind of caught my eye because I'm going to leave out the celebrity that they mentioned, but they mentioned somebody well-known and in parentheses, and this is in the subject line of the email, right? So it has the name of the person and in parentheses, it has their follower count on Instagram. And then they put the plus sign and my one of my my main Instagram handle, I'll say, which is Eco Vegan Gal. There's so their celebrity's name, parentheses, their followers, plus Eco Vegan Gal Instagram collaboration. And I will say that caught my eye because I knew who this person was and I thought, oh, okay, well, I wonder what this is. And I, I didn't really think too hard about it, but in hindsight, it's like, okay, well, every once in a while, Jason and I are approached and people want to do various collaborations that are supposedly mutually beneficial. But what instantly <laughs> showed me that this really had nothing to do with me, and this was just a, a true form letter, is they wrote, hi, eco vegan gal, all one word, not capitalized or spaced out the way that it is and not addressed to my name. We have an exciting Instagram promotion launching with this celebrity, and we thought you might be interested in joining based on your interest in growing your brand. Okay. I don't know where they made that assumption that I want to grow my brand. This person will be asking her millions of followers on Instagram to follow a group of brands in order to qualify. These brands will be participating in a quote group buy that will allow them to gain exposure and qualified targeted followers from her audience at a fraction of the cost. On top of new followers gained, we have a bonus where people enter their name and email address and you'll get all of their emails submitted to use for your marketing purposes. If you're interested, let me know because these spots will go fast. 
Now I'm reading this in a mocking tone of voice and I'm trying to be mindful of, I don't want to be condescending because I imagine that the person that wrote this email and sent this email has hopefully good intentions, but it just kind of hit me in this way of, first of all, sure, I would like to grow. I consider myself a business owner. Jason and I have this podcast and our brand Wellevator together. We each have our own Instagram accounts and social media accounts. We have our own websites. We do a lot online. And certainly it's been in our interest to grow over the years. But to me, what what kind of irritates me is like when somebody is like targeting and trying to almost like hone in on the fact that like it's so appealing to collaborate with somebody with lots of followers, this idea of exposure. And then on top of that, we'll get all these emails to use for marketing of strangers to try to sell our product and services, right? On that same day, I also got an email that was a little bit spammier. And this is from a company that's all about raising your influence. And they start off by saying, and this is not addressed to me at all, this is purely spam, like I'm on some email list, but you need an audience to talk about your brand. The advantage of Instagram giveaways and contests is that I allow you to build brand awareness. In fact, the Instagram accounts that run regular contests grow 70 times faster than those that don't. If you participate in this campaign that we have, you'll be given the opportunity to drive additional followers to your Instagram account. You're exposing your brand and Instagram account to actual people who will start following you. After you have 10,000 followers in your account, you can link your stories. All this stuff, right? And I already have over 10,000 followers on my Instagram account. So it's like they did not even like do the research to qualify me on here, right? Purely pitching and trying to encourage me to sign up with them and participate in the sweepstakes, whatever they're doing. And then lastly, I had actually today an email and it's like their subject line, get 100,000 plus Instagram followers and a verified badge just for $699. Our service helps you grow your Instagram followers to 1 million with real engagement, real people, so you can get your verified badge. Our dedicated team of PR experts have written hundreds of articles to increase social proof. And people that use our method have a 96% higher chance of getting verified all for just $699. And it was $899. So we're giving you $200 off, right? And I read this stuff and talk about this at the beginning of this episode, because listen, like, as I said, my aim is not to judge other people for this. My aim is not to judge the people that approach me about these things. Like everybody's got their different reasons for it. But if you are new to our show, you may not have heard us talk about it. And if you've been listening for a while, you're familiar with the fact that Jason and I are, are kind of sensitive to these types of messages and emails from people that kind of want to capitalize on the fact that growing an Instagram following feels so important and valuable. I'm curious, Jason, if you've received emails like this, you probably get direct messages. I've actually seen a massive increase in spam DMs recently on Instagram. Uh, almost every single day after every post I put up, I'm getting spam comments and spam messages from people trying to say that they're going to collaborate with me. And 
a lot of it's under this idea of like, if you do this, then you'll get all these followers. And I think for me to begin this conversation, I'm sensitive to it because I want to lift this veil for the listener, especially that's not in this world of influence and content creation and and remind everybody that things are not always what they seem. We've talked about in the past how you can buy your followers. So first of all, what does it even mean to have all those followers if you can just buy them or participate in a contest, right? If you can jump in with a celebrity. And it also kind of taints my view of the celebrity that they mention. I felt pretty neutral about her before, but like reading this, I'm like, gosh, like, Maybe she sees it as, hey, I'm giving other people the opportunity to get exposure, but clearly she's being paid because you have to pay to participate. And it just makes me think like, why is it that followers are so important when these are actual human beings? Hopefully, some of them are going to be bots or people that create these fake accounts to show, to try to create influence. So we take influence so seriously. We treat it with so much importance. A lot of us are drawn or addicted to this idea of growing our following. But what does it matter if it's purchased, if it's manipulated, if you can get a million followers in a matter of days, weeks, months, however long it takes, or for a certain amount of money? And I'm just kind of curious to see where this industry goes, because I don't think it's going away. I think the influencer world is just growing bigger and bigger. But I'm really interested to see what it's going to become over time if so many people are using these methods to fake their way to influence. And and how is it even influence if it's all faked? But yet, we're still living in a time where this is treated very seriously. In fact, on TikTok the other day, so I don't remember if I sent this to you or not, Jason, but there's a guy on TikTok who created an app that mimics the design of TikTok. And so he can go, quote, live on TikTok to 30 or 40,000 people. And he's doing a social experiment and he's going around to businesses and showing them this fake app. They don't know it's fake, but it looks like he has 40,000 followers on TikTok on his live feed. And he's convinced people to take him more seriously or give him access to things simply because it looks like he has all of these people watching his live videos. And I guess I'm just like incredibly fascinated as somebody who's been trying to do this authentically for over 10 years, how I might be, quote, missing out on opportunities because I'm not willing to fake it. I'm not willing to buy my way up the ladder. I'm not willing to treat people like they're just a number. And I don't want to like rush into something for some short-term gain. I'm in this for the long run, and I know you are too, Jason. So I'm curious after everything I've shared what your thoughts are and if you've been receiving emails like this too. I have a lot of thoughts on this. (laughs) So you knew bringing this up, Whitney. Yeah, it is an extension of some of the previous conversations we've had here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Most recently, we did a pretty deep, vulnerable discussion and dissection of the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. So for you, dear listener, if you have not yet seen that episode, seen it, listen to that episode. A few episodes ago, we talked about our thoughts and some research and science and our own personal experiences with mental health, emotional wellness, the cultural implications, the community implications, the human health implications of social media usage. 
So if you want a really deeper diatribe and exploration, I would suggest checking out that episode. But to answer sort of this new exploration, this sidebar you've cracked open, Whitney, I want to start by saying these experiments in manipulating social media and the effect it has on human psychology, the first thing that comes up for me, I'm curious if you've seen this. This was a little over two years ago. This was like December 2017, January 2018. There was a writer in the United Kingdom. He was a journalist named uh, Uba Butler, and Vice Magazine contracted him to start a fake restaurant. I think it was called The Shed. It was The Shed, The Shed at Dulwich. And he created this fake restaurant in the backyard of a garden shed that it was sold out on Yelp. People tried and called to make reservations, and they could never get a reservation. And he created an entire fake social media campaign that pushed this, quote, fake restaurant to number one on TripAdvisor, number one on Yelp, and the restaurant didn't even exist. It was all hype and manipulation and social media leverage to create an illusion of success that because no one could get a reservation, no one had ever seen this restaurant. It was like a mystery, right? So using basic human psychology of scarcity and uh, exclusivity and mystery, it's a fantastic expose. We'll link to that article. There's a video on Vice's YouTube channel, and there's a great NPR article about how a fake restaurant became London's number one restaurant. And I don't want to give any spoilers away, but by the end of the documentary, the restaurant, quote, opens for service. And it is absolutely fascinating to see people's reactions. Like This is a must-watch. It's a must-watch, dear listener. So first of all, Whitney, I think that this idea of this app you talked about, this kind of fake TikTok app to see how companies would react, these kind of psychological social experiments with social media have been going on for quite some time. And I'm always fascinated to see human beings' reactions to it. But I think what we're getting down to here is the nitty-gritty of the sort of hardwiring of our reptilian brain which is we want to be accepted, we want to be part of air of significance and importance with the tribe, right? And we want to feel like we're powerful and influential. And I think that the idea of numbers is compounded. Let me say this, the pressure to get a certain number of followers is compounded when you are leveraging your business in social media. So what we talked about in our previous episode and what the Social Dilemma documentary covers is more of the how do I even say this? A normal person's psychological and physical interaction with social media platforms. But I think there's an even deeper level of pressure and deeper level of expectation when you have your business and your livelihood and your financial stability tied into your social media following. And here's why it gets tricky. And I know this is a long answer, Whitney, but you gave me a lot of food for thought, so I want to keep running with it. In the idea of making money with social media, and it's something that you and I have been relying on for a decade now, maybe even a little bit longer. When you have uh, TV production companies asking, what's your platform? How many followers do you have when you're in a pitch meeting? And I've been in a lot of pitch meetings. Like Even before I got my series on Cooking Channel, I had other offers and pitch opportunities with networks. So what's your platform? What's your platform? How big's your following? When I was pitching my book to publishers, it was the same thing. How many Instagram followers do you have? What's your following on YouTube? What's your mailing list? Every single publisher I talked to, and I talked to about 15 publishers, every single one wanted to have a central focus of the conversation be about platform size and number of followers. But then it's bleeding now into other industries. We have a good friend of ours who's an actor. He's been decently successful on TV and movies. And he said now when the past two years, since about 2018, when he goes into castings, Whitney, he has seen now a lot of casting directors asking about his social media following. 
and his manager putting pressure on him, his agent putting pressure on him. And he's seen people, I know this is a relative assessment of perhaps people that were not as talented or experienced as actors getting roles because they had hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. And that's an extra marketing tool for the production company or the movie company to get more exposure for their film. He's like, what the fuck? I'm getting passed over for roles that I think I should probably get. But these quote, in his words, shittier actors are getting them because they have bigger followings. So the pressure is that so many industries now are being infiltrated by how big's your following, how big's your following, how big's your following. And they're giving opportunities to people, financially lucrative opportunities based on their following size, not whether they're the most qualified, not whether they're the most talented, and in some cases, not whether they're even right for the position or the role. A lot of corporations, publishers, music companies, casting directors, movie houses, they're obsessed with this. And so it's that extra layer of pressure as an artist, as a creative, as an entrepreneur to quote, get your numbers up. And as you said, Whitney, grow your brand because so many people are just absolutely obsessed with follower count now. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it I wanted to say is you asked if I'm getting bombarded. I am. Like this year, I legit every single week get in my inbox, my DMs, the verified badge thing. Hey, do you want to get a verified badge? Do you want to get a verified badge? It's and same thing, it's the same price range. It's usually like eight hundred to a thousand dollars. They're like, we can get you verified on Instagram. And it's like, what does that blue check mark even represent? Because you can get verified on YouTube, you can get verified on Facebook, you can get verified on Twitter, you can get verified on Instagram, right? What does that even mean? It's like I'm a really important person now because I have the blue check mark. Like, <sighs> I'm on a rant here because the danger in all this is that people are tying their sense of self-worth, and I am very, very much in this, and I have done this and had to unravel this, and I'm still unraveling it, of my financial self-worth, my social proof is tied to my number of followers and whether I have the fancy blue check mark. And to be honest with you, Wit, I actually got into a conversation, like a week-long conversation with one of these people that spammed me about getting a verified badge because I just wanted to see where the conversation was going to go. Legit, you know, I was like, you know what? Let me engage with this person who's probably emailing me from, I don't fucking know, Azerbaijan. Who the hell knows where this person is from? Nothing against the Azerbaijanis, is just making a joke. But they just kept going. They're like, they sent me a photoshopped screenshot of my profile page with the blue check mark. They're like, see, this is what we look like. And I'm like, cool. Yeah, I'm not going to Venmo you $800 because I don't know you. And you're just some rando on Instagram who's offering to verify my page. But I think this all comes back to, Whitney, that the deepest psychological parts of our anthro anthropology as humans is we want a sense of importance. We want a sense of power. We want to feel like our self-worth can be measured by metrics, these vanity metrics. And as entrepreneurs, creatives, and artists, there is that deeper layer of pressure of, I got to build my brand. I got to get my numbers up because that's how I'm making my living. And God forbid... I get passed up for an opportunity or a gig or a movie or a record deal or book deal by someone who's got a bigger following than me. And what does this do? This engenders jealousy. It engenders anger. Fucking hell. Last night I had this come up for me, Whitney. Last night <laughs> I was on Facebook. You know how they have, it's called Facebook stories, whatever the equivalent of Facebook, Instagram stories, the short snippet videos. And there's a guy who I used to be in a meditation group with, a younger guy who moved to Oregon. And he was doing like this 10 minute video about his brand new Tesla. And I'm like, fuck this guy. <laughs> like, he's a friend of mine, right? I'm like, fuck him. You have brand new Tesla. You're like, I've worked harder than you. I've got more followers than you. I've been, I've been, I've been at this, you know, it was just all this jealousy. And I like him. Like, he's a great guy. Like, I have nothing against him, but 
all this fucking jealousy was pouring out of me about like, Psh, oh, what are you doing to get a brand new Tesla, dude? Like, what'd you do to earn that? Like, I got in such a toxic, jealous mindset. I don't know where that's leading, but I just had to spew all that out because you asked. And there's a lot more I probably have to share, but that's just how I wanted to respond to all your questions with from the jump. Well, it's interesting because I, I wonder too, like when I, I've been talking a lot about my Tesla recently due to my road trip. And I wonder how many people think those things about me or have thought those things about you when you got your TV show, Jason, or a book deal or whatever else. Like we've been on both sides of this. And it's so interesting because just because I have a Tesla doesn't mean that I'm financially stable all the time. I chose to get a Tesla. I'm certainly, it's a stretch for me. In fact, I think there was a, even an article back when the Model 3 became available called like this Tesla stretch or something. How I remember that. The, the Model 3 is was at the time, or maybe still is, least expensive Tesla you can get starting at $35,000. It suddenly felt accessible to people. And yet for someone like me, it's still a stretch. I'm not like at a place where spending however much I spend each month on my Tesla is easy. But part of the reason I talk about it on social media is to share what it's like in case other people are interested in it. And also to celebrate the car. I mean, that's you know, a little side note, but if I'm going to spend as much money as I'm spending on my car every month, I better be enjoying it every single day. And I am. So for me, like going on this road trip and talking about all the different features of the car, it's like, oh, this is what I'm paying for versus getting something and not really valuing it, but spending a ton of money on it is a whole different story. And a lot of what you're saying too, Jason, reminds me though of something we've talked about so many times on the show that we really don't need to get into it again. But just to like touch upon it briefly is that idea that just because you have all of these things doesn't mean that you're any happier. I mean, I will say to be fully transparent, the Tesla brings me joy every single day. It has actually improved my quality of life. I'll be honest. And it does bring me joy and happiness, but it's not a materialism thing. It's that I chose a car that has elements to it that really complement me and gave me the ability to do things easier than before. And that to me is part of why I love technology, right? That's why I love my iPhone and I love my computer, you know, like all of these material things that I have. But if I didn't have them, I don't think my quality of life would be that much worse off, right? So that's the important thing to recognize. Just like anybody that has a lot of money and buys a lot of things with it or gets a lot of fame through social media and the access that they have. You know, one thing that came up for me is there's a really big TikTok person whose name will go unmentioned, but she just recently got cast in a movie. I think they made a movie just to have her in it, or maybe they were already making the movie and cast her as the main role. I don't really know. I didn't look too far into it because I had that similar reaction, Jason. I was like, oh my gosh, this teenager who became popular on TikTok for making really simple videos now has a movie deal. Like I just learned about her probably nine months ago and suddenly she's got a, a starring role in a movie, right? And she's been all over the news for this. And you probably wouldn't even know who she is if I said her name to you, Jason, because she's not that well known for our age range outside of TikTok. 
But there's another one who I'll name Charlie. Charlie, you may have heard of Jason because she's actually blown up and become more of a household name. And, and so much so that they named a drink at Dunkin' Donuts after her. And you can go and order a drink and call or if you order the Charlie at Dunkin' Donuts. Like that level of fame is really interesting. But she too became very well known for dancing. And you can look at her and think, oh, it didn't take a lot of talent. She's almost like a Paris Hilton type who we've talked about a bit recently, who became kind of famous for being famous. Like some people blow up on social media very easily. And I think actually the difference between those people and this method that we started this episode out, it was kind of more luck for them. I mean, Charlie is somebody I don't have that much of a resentment towards because she's a really cute, seemingly sweet girl who is actually a dancer. And so she danced in her videos and because of her appearance and her dance moves, and also just due to being in the right place at the right time, she blew up on there. I don't think she bought her fame. I don't think it was contrived. I think she just lucked out. And other people may have started to mimic her and figure out the strategies. And I think that's another thing on social media that I reflect a lot on is people will find these formulas and either create them themselves based on what other people are doing, or they'll, as we've talked about in some episodes, take a course with somebody who's teaching them the ways, the strategies of success. And I think this is actually reminds me too of, we talked about Brendan Burchard recently, who's somebody that both you and I, Jason, really turn to for a lot of business advice. And Brendan's taught us a lot. I'm very grateful for him. I've really enjoyed going to his live events in the past. I've listened to his books. He was somebody I was really, really into for a while. But I think part of where my feelings about him started to shift was when he really started to dig into the influencer world. And now he's like trying to be an influencer expert, or maybe he is. I shouldn't, I'm not trying to be condescending. I think he is actually very, very knowledgeable about these things because he himself is influential. So he's teaching other people how to be influential. And I think there's a huge benefit to that, right? Because influence is not on its own bad. There's nothing wrong with it. You and I, Jason, use our, quote, influence for our own benefit all the time. As you said, we profit off of that. We make money off of that. People are listening to this podcast because they may have found us through whatever influence we have, right? So I think it's it's kind of on a case-by-case basis, like what do you do when you create this following? And certainly I perceive there being a big difference between a following that's organic and authentic versus a following that's purchased and very contrived. But that's a big judgment, right? So everybody's kind of on their own path with it. Going back to Brendan Burchard, I guess... Once I heard him talk, like focusing so much on influence and so much on hustle and productivity, as we've discussed before, I got turned off by him, at least for now, because I'm sensitive to that. It's triggering for me. It's just not what I want to focus on. I don't want to hustle more. I don't want to be more productive. I don't want to focus on my value being so tied to how many followers I have. I would rather really keep things minimal. And that's why a lot of this is not for me. I'm not after the blue check mark. I think I have a blue check mark on Facebook and it's done jack shit for me. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I will be fully transparent. 
just, I keep saying things like, and then realizing that they're not the full truth. So I'll be honest. With Facebook, I think I got my blue check mark because I was in a program that Facebook did. Talk about luck. I got invited to a health and wellness event that Facebook put on at their headquarters in Los Angeles, and meaning their offices in Los Angeles. They're not fully based there. And I got invited into this event. They gave me a blue check mark because they got to know me and I had a certain number of followers, right? So sometimes that blue check mark is purely based on who you know. They were not able to get me an Instagram check mark, by the way. They said that they would try, but they weren't able to achieve that because the Instagram check mark at the time, this is a few years ago, had to do with like very specific measurements or it was like, if I remember correctly, like it just wasn't as easy to get as a Facebook check mark, right? So I got that. And I thought like, wow, my life is going to (laughs) change. Here I am working directly with Facebook. They gave me the check mark. And I did have some cool opportunities. I got invited to Facebook and their events that they had, which you came to me. You came with me to one of those, Jason. And it was really great. You know, like you get invited with a bunch of other influencers and treated really special. Like those opportunities are awesome. You know, you get free stuff and you get a cool experience. You're treated like you're really important. Our egos love that sort of thing, right? And then I also got to try a lot of Facebook's new features before other people did and give them feedback. And I love doing stuff like that. Beta testing is one of my favorite things to do. I'm an early adopter in technology. I I love trying things. So long story short, sure, the Facebook checkmark felt kind of beneficial. But in the long run, did it really impact my happiness? Did it make me feel more fulfilled? Does it make me feel like I'm valuable? No. And I think that's the big point here that we've we've talked about a lot is that people kind of, just like the Social Dilemma documentary talks about, we're all very manipulated by these basic human desires to feel valuable, to feel important, to feel successful, to feel like other people like us, need us, want us to feel like we have access to things, that makes us feel secure. That taps right into that desire to survive. And money, fame, success, and friendships, connections, all of those things are very tied into our survival. And I have an issue with these brands and these people that go after these weaknesses within us as human beings. They're kind of manipulating us to feel like if we just do this one thing, we will get everything that we really want and our lives will fully change. And I also have issue with that because let's just say you, Jason, decided to buy your followers. It has a really big ripple effect. First of all, you're never going to feel satisfied by the number of followers you have. It's just anybody I've ever talked to, it's not like they're like, okay, I have a million followers. I'm good. Once you get to a million followers, you're going to want 1.5. You're going to want two. You're going to want on and on and on. It's never going to feel enough. And second of all, the ripple effect is, as we've seen with friends and acquaintances of ours, it violates a sense of trust. And when you see somebody blow up overnight and you find out later that they purchased it or they manipulated the system in some way to get that, I think a lot of people lose their trust in you and they feel like they how could they trust you if you're willing to cheat the system? Because we all kind of started off in this level playing field of you earn it. You get these people to believe in you, to trust in you, to like you enough. I mean, that's like 
true friendship versus fake popularity, right? And the ripple effect too is that if you have all these people following you that don't even really care, that's not a true foundation of influence that affects any brands that decide to partner with you. And it's kind of like, what's it called in the grade, like when you're in a school and they base the grading system of like a paper or a test based on other people in the room, Jason? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I can't remember the terminology, but I remember certain classes or certain teachers would do that. And it was like the averages would get skewed then, right? Is like if people were cheating on their homework or cheating on their tests or manipulating or cheating the system, it affects everyone. And I think that's the point you're making, right? Is that none of this exists in a vacuum. None of it, right? If someone is gaming the system or cheating the system, the ripple effect is massive. It's not just about their career, their longevity, their financial stability, it affects the whole industry. And I don't think people who are cheating the system, many of them think about it in those terms. Absolutely. And I think that's really important for us to step back and look at this, the long-term effects of our decisions. Also, as human beings, we're designed to look for shortcuts. We've talked about this before. It's funny, Jason, after doing over 130 episodes, how a lot of the same things come up over and over again. And I, I think they're just in different contexts. The book, The Pleasure Trap, is something we've referenced a few times. And that book really had a long-term effect on me because, ironically, it is about how humans look for the short term. It's like we are trying to find the shortcuts so that we can put the least amount of energy into something and get the most amount out of it. And that's why we are drawn to things like fast food. It's like, oh, this is inexpensive, so we don't have to work very hard to get it. It's fast, so we don't have to take a lot of time to get it. And it tastes amazing. So our taste buds are just going crazy. However, the long term is that it's not full of nutrients. In fact, there's things in many fast foods that are bad for our body. So whether it leads to us getting inflamed or having digestive issues or being deplete of nutrients or perhaps putting on weight that's not serving us in a beneficial way. There's a consequence to it. And many of us are aware of the consequences, but we're still so wired as human beings to look for the quickest way to get what we want in that moment. And just getting food, getting calories, if those can be inexpensive and quick calories, we're going to choose that over more expensive and harder to acquire, longer to acquire things. I think that's basically what's happening with social media influence is over the past five to 10 years, as influence has become more and more important in our society, people are drawn to that and they see the benefits. You know, And you and I are part of the system too, Jason. As I said earlier, I'm the, I'll be very frank and admit it when I've played into this. We talked about this in the Social Dilemma episode as well, where I know that I've played a role in this in a lot of different ways. First of all, I've kind of played into this whole, like, look at me, look at all the stuff I get for being influential. Now I'm very careful and try to be. I'm not always perfect at this, but if I get something for free from a brand, I really try not to position it as like, look at how lucky I am that this brand sent me this for free, because that's not really fair to people. Like, I don't want to brag about what I got. (laughs) Just like I'm not trying to brag about my Tesla. I'm talking about the benefits of the Tesla for anybody who's interested. I'm not trying to be like, look at me. I got a Tesla. That's not my aim. And I hope I don't come off that way. And we can't always control how people perceive us, right? 
But I will also admit that over the years, like bragging about the people that I've met through this world, you know, using people in some ways to make myself look good because, ooh, look who my friends are. And Jason and I have each had a number of influential friends over the years that had higher influence than us. And certainly part of me had thought, well, maybe if I'm close to this person, I'll become more influential or maybe people will take me more seriously because of who I know. And looking back, I'm like, ugh, I can't believe that I was doing that, right? But that's part of the system that we've been in and part of the system that we helped create because you and I, Jason, have been in this world for over 10 years. We've been part of the evolution of all of this. So we have a responsibility. And I had a responsibility when I worked with Facebook and giving them feedback and participating in their things and watching the documentary, The Social Dilemma. I had to step back and be like, wow, like, was I part of this? Was I part of this problem? Like, Partially, yes. In some ways, yes. And I think that's part of what we've been revealing about ourselves through these podcast episodes is acknowledging our shadow sides with social media, noticing our own triggers, noticing what we don't like, what doesn't feel good anymore that may have used to feel good, and pointing it out to other people. Because I think in terms of our role, if we're making social media influence look like it's so great and we're having so much fun and we're getting all this free stuff and we're making this money, you know, I used to be a huge proponent for um, working for yourself from home. I've taught classes about that. I've talked a lot about, I still do work in social media marketing. It's shifted a lot over the years, but for a long time, it was like, hey, if you just take one of my classes or coach with me, consult with me. I'll teach you how to use social media more effectively and I'll teach you how to work for yourself. And I know that deep down my intentions were good, but on a surface level, when I see people doing the stuff that I used to do, I cringe a little bit, to be honest. (laughs) I kind of think like, ooh, like I was one of those people that was like, just follow my five-step system to make money. Yeah. I also think it engenders compassion if we allow it to, in the sense that you observing these behaviors that a previous version of you did, Whitney, you know, the cringe factor, which I also feel, of course. I mean, there's all kinds of behaviors. But if I go back and I look at certain videos or or there are certain tweets from when did I join? I don't 12 years ago, I'm like, I even cringe at myself. But I also have compassion because if we take responsibility for yes, our contribution to creating the system for being what it is now, which absolutely, I mean, we, you and I have thrived in the system. We've also seen the dangers mentally, physically, emotionally from buying too hard into the system and attaching it to our sense of self-worth. Like I'm becoming more and more interested in this concept of digital wellness and how to navigate this brave new world, if you will, to quote Huxley. It's like reality is becoming a very strange thing. And I, I know 2020, the time we're recording this, things feel very surreal, for lack of a better word. It's almost very matrixy. It feels like there are different realities happening all at once concurrently. But social media, the more that I'm really in it, I have almost these moments of lucidity where I'll be in an app or I'll be watching videos and I'm like, I'm in an alternate reality right now. You know, I get sucked into the YouTube algorithm, which to me is many times one of the most wonderful algorithms, but also realizing how nefarious it is. Like the other day, I went on to watch a guitar tutorial 
And then next thing I know, I'm watching a drum tutorial. I'm not a drummer, nor could I give a shit about a drum tutorial. Then next thing you know, I'm watching old footage of like Led Zeppelin from 1970. And then I'm watching this. And and before you even realize it, you're down in the rabbit hole of this alternate reality because the AI and the algorithms and the technology is designed to keep your attention as long as possible. Like no matter what it takes, whether it's music videos or cars or cat videos or conspiracy theories or right-wing propaganda or left-wing prop, whatever the hell it is, they are designed to keep you there as long as possible. So it's like, oh my God, I'm not actually in my own reality. I'm in their version of what they want my reality to be. They're manipulating my attention to create a separate reality. And knowing that and becoming more aware of when we're sucked into it, I think is really important. But the compassion side of it too, Wit, and you actually talk me down sometimes from this because I I tend to get pissed off and go on some maybe hardcore rants here on the podcast from time to time, but it gets me back to how can we grow our self-awareness of what's running us, right? And I talk about my mentor, Michael Park, and his his sort of Gurdjieffian work. There's a George Gurdjieff was a philosopher and a spiritual teacher from the 1920s through the 1940s and 50s. And Michael's work is very much based in this Gurdjieffian philosophy. But the idea that there are these, these four dual basic urges that run all of humanity. And so conditioned people, right? People who are under the spell of social media in this case, are caught up in this illusionary pursuit of non-disturbance, right? Which is this idea that if I just get everything that I want in life, then I won't experience pain, I won't experience loss, I won't experience sadness, I won't experience not enoughness, right? That's what I mean by non-disturbance. If I just get everything I want, I'll be non-disturbed. So the premise of, of these dual basic urges in human psychology, if I can pursue everything I want and get everything I gain and avoid the escape side, the pain side, then I won't, I won't be disturbed in my life, right? So on the one side, the gain side of getting everything you want, there's these four urges. And one is pleasure, comfort, right? If I just get enough pleasure or comfort in my life, I'll be fine. If I get enough attention in life, if I get enough approval and I'm important, I'm significant. But then on the other side, because they're called the dual basic urges on the escape side, we want to try and avoid pain and discomfort. We want to avoid being rejected or being ignored. We want to avoid disapproval and we want to avoid inferiority. But if you really think about human behavior wit, which is what we're talking about on a, on a psychological, anthropological level, you can really distill most of human activity, if not all of it, to this, right? People want pleasure, comfort. They want attention, approval, and, and significance. And they want to get the hell away from pain, being uncomfortable, being rejected, being disapproved of, and feeling inferior. And it's almost like I try to be mindful of these basic foundations of tribal human psychology and what's running me. When I think, oh, if I only make more money, and you know that I've had a hell of a roller coaster relationship with money. We've talked about it here on the podcast is this idea that if I just get enough money, I'll feel safe. I'll feel secure. I'll feel like I've, quote, made it. Like all of the hard work, all of the blood, sweat, and tears will have paid off if I just get a certain amount of money. But to your point, whether it's followers wit or it's influence or having the right waist size or having big enough breasts or having uh, the right car or having the right number of numbers in your bank account or your 401k. As humans, we're exploited by corporations and marketing companies and social media with this idea of the ever-present dangling carrot. If I just get the next carrot, if I just get to the next level, if I just 10x my company, if I just get more zeros in my bank account, if I just lose the extra five pounds, I'll be happy. And it is a never-ending, soul-sucking, 
absolutely anti-humanistic approach to life. And look, advertising companies know it, marketing companies know it, social media sure as fuck knows it, and they're using it to appeal to our base, base level of what they know we're going to move toward and what they know we're going to be repelled from. I think the best thing we can do is to try and become aware of when we are being manipulated and trying to chase that carrot, right? Of like, oh, right, I'm falling under the illusion that if I take this gig and I get my quote, big break and make all this money, then I'll be validated and I'll never have self-worth issues again, right? We know on a fundamental level that if you lose the five pounds and you make extra money and you, whatever the carrot you're chasing is, if you have self-worth issues, your sense of self-worth is not going to be elevated by those things. Like, If anything, it might make those self-worth issues worse of like, who am I to deserve this body? Who am I to deserve this money? Who am I to deserve this fame? Like, If you have unhealed trauma, all the money and beauty and success and fame is not going to heal your trauma. Exactly. And I feel like that's why it's so important to talk about this because I'm sure that makes sense to people when they hear this. But we need to hear this over and over and over again because it's so easy to fall out of that thought process. Just like it's easy to know that you're eating fast food and eat it anyways, right? It's like if you are marketed or manipulated in a certain way, it'll override your logical thinking. And I think for us working in this world of influence or marketing, it takes me constant self-awareness in order to snap out of it because I can easily fall into the comparison trap at any moment's notice. I can easily feel like my self-worth is dependent on how many likes I get on a photo or video. And what I've been really trying to tune into recently is like deeper connections one-on-one with people. I've talked about how I've been working on this project called Beyond Measure and What I've been doing for about three months with Beyond Measure is reaching out to individuals who have consistently communicated with me through social media, direct message, through comments, through emails, et cetera, any form of deeper connections versus a like or a follow, which don't resonate with me as much as a comment or message, private or public, right? I've been creating individual connections and then a group connection, a community. And it's been remarkable. And how I think right now there are about 10 people in this testing period of Beyond Measure that I've been doing. Those 10 people have so much more value to me than 17,000 people on Instagram or 100 plus thousand people on Facebook or whatever else, you know, all these other metrics. However, I can tell myself that I can know that and yet still get caught up in how many likes I get. And part of that is that we've been conditioned this way for so long. Oh, you can't come to this party because you don't have enough followers. Oh, I don't want to collaborate with you because you don't get enough likes on your post. Oh, I don't want to pay you to be part of this program or this campaign because your engagement isn't high enough. We've been hit over the head over and over again in this field that we've been working in. And I'm talking about Jason and I, but perhaps the listener is in the same boat of being rewarded or not rewarded, punished, left out, whatever word or phrase you want to use for numbers. And I take big issue with that because I think it's 
perhaps on the, again, on the short term, you can think of it as like, oh, you get it. Like we can only pay you this amount of money because that's only the budget we have. And we need to base our budget based on metrics and our return on investment. Like on a very logical level, that makes sense. But when you've heard no over and over again for five to 10 years, it starts to make you feel like, oh, if I want to make enough money to pay my bills or make enough money to have a Tesla or whatever it is, buy a house, I need to change the way that I'm doing things. And if the way that I've been doing things authentically isn't working, then perhaps I need to cheat. Perhaps I need to fake it till I make it. And then once I faked it enough and made it enough, I can stop the faking. But what I've observed is that some people continue to fake it because, again, they never feel enough. Like once they get a taste of what that fake fame gives them, they continue it because then the carrots just get farther and farther away. There's more and more carrots. The carrots bigger, like, oh, I want, I really, oh, I've, I've, yeah, I can pay my bills easily, but. I could get a better house. I could get a better car. I could go on more vacations. I could do this or that. I could be on a TV show. I could get a book deal. I could get a second book deal, right? There's always something more to go for. And I think that's why some people continue to fake or cheat or whatever else they're doing. And it can also get very muddled because even if you stop faking it, even if you stop cheating, you're still left with that residual effect. There's one person in particular, I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, Jason, but we'll never call out this person. But there's one person that I think <laughs> behind the scenes and, and sometimes on the podcast, we've referenced this person who will always be nameless because we're certainly not here to call out somebody in particular. Although even by bringing this example up, I suppose we're calling them out. But, but I think of this person frequently because I used to really trust this person. And once I learned how much this person was kind of manipulating and cheating and faking the system, I grew very resentful and I lost that trust. I lost my respect for this person because for me, as we said earlier, it felt unfair. It's no longer a level playing field when somebody has much higher numbers than you that they've bought or that they've achieved through some of these practices, you know, like participating in these group buys or these sweepstakes, these contests or whatever else. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but the way that they're being used, I think, has a really challenging ripple effect. And, and I feel sad about it because I would like to trust this person. I would like to have respect. And I, I think perhaps I could choose it. I could be very conscious about it and, and forgive them. But that ripple effect is so hard because it affects me, it affects you, Jason, and it affects this person's followers. It affects the whole industry, this person getting rewarded for that behavior. And then suddenly, those rewards are not as accessible to me or Jason or a lot of other people because why should we receive those rewards when we don't have those numbers, even if we didn't cheat our way to them? And I take a big issue with that because I don't think that that's, that's not the way that I want to live. And, and going back to something I've said a few times in this episode, it's some people do want to live that way. Some people are okay with that. They have different values. They have different ethics. And I guess we each as individuals choose how we want to operate and we have our outlook on the world. 
And if somebody doesn't fit into that outlook or that operation, they're just not a fit for us. And this person is just not a fit for me in my life because I don't agree with the way that this person is operating. And that makes me a little sad because I, deep down, I know that this person has a really good heart and I would love to have them in my life. And I, I think it's true of anything. It's like when you see different sides of somebody that you no longer resonate with, you kind of have nostalgia for how you used to view them and who they used to be to you. And I think that this industry kind of brings out the best and the worst in people. You know, like you see a lot of talent coming from people on social media. And sometimes you see people doing things that doesn't feel talented to you, but they know it works. So they're like, hey, I could do the least amount of effort and get the most amount of reward for it. And you can sit there and go, gosh, like I put so much effort into this and I'm not getting rewarded that way. That doesn't feel fair to me. It's like what you said earlier, Jason. It's hard to see people getting the things that you want with putting in what you perceive as a lot less work and time. There are trade-offs to this. I really believe there are energetic and spiritual trade-offs for these kind of decisions. And here's what I mean by that. I think that Jason Horton talked about this in the article. We talked about the existential crises and identities of content creators. It was a great interview. Again, previous episode for you, dear listener, if you want to go to our website to check out any of the previous episodes we've mentioned or the resources during this episode, go to our website. It's wellevator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section in the global navigation. It'll take you right to our show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes. But what you're saying, Whitney, is a piggyback on an element of that conversation we had with Jason where you can start to see what type of content, what type of creative thematic content gets the most views, right? And you start to try and, again, have a version of gaming the system. Well, if these are getting a million views, I should just keep doing more of these. But the point Jason Horton brought up was sometimes he'll put a very, very low effort piece of content out and it'll get drastically more views and engagement than something he spent you know, weeks, say, working at the YouTube studio here in LA. Why should I go to the YouTube studio and spend weeks producing and editing something when I can just shit something out, proverbially speaking, and it gets tons of views? But the danger as an artist, I think, is that when you, quote, try and game the system and you're like, well, if I just keep doing more of this style, that'll get me more money, fame, influence, numbers. But there's a payoff or there's a trade-off rather. There's a trade-off for the payoff. And it's this, it's that I know for me, and I've talked to other friends of mine that are musicians, content creators, artists, some that are mutual friends of ours, Whitney, that you start to lose your authenticity and your creative spark, your mojo, if you will, because you start producing for your audience and not for yourself. You start producing things for the likes and the comments and the engagement, the vanity metrics, we call them, instead of being true to your own heart. And this is a very, very dangerous, slippery slope because if you do this for enough years, you might get to the point where you're like, I don't really want to fucking do this anymore because you've been doing it for the numbers, doing it for the fame, doing it for the metrics, and you're not actually expressing authentically what you want to do anymore. I mean, we've seen this with so many artists, right? They get locked into a record deal or a book deal or something where they're working where there's potentially millions of dollars or God knows how much money on the line. And they feel a pressure to make a certain kind of art or a certain kind of quote product or they themselves. I mean, we're in an age now where people, the artists themselves, the content creators themselves are sometimes more of a product than what they're even creating. You know, they are the brand. They as a person now have been 
commodified to a point where they feel the pressure to be a certain way, look a certain way, dress a certain way, make a certain kind of art. But I really think you give up, you potentially give up a piece of your authenticity and a piece of your soul doing that. And I think that your heart and your soul at a certain point starts to try and get your attention to be like, don't do this anymore. This isn't authentic. This isn't what you really want to be doing. But when you get to a certain level, there's so much money and fame and so much pressure that a lot of people can't turn back. And that's a really scary place to be in. It reminds me of the Disney version of The Little Mermaid. I don't know if this is true in the original fable. Ariel wants to be a human so badly, and she's very inspired by the love that she has for this human man. So she trades her voice for a pair of legs and the ability to breathe out. Maybe she already could breathe. I don't know. I think it's more about her legs than anything else, right? And it's kind of interesting to look back on that movie as an adult because we see it so innocently. We think, oh, this mermaid, she wants to be in the song, she says, where the people are and she wants to live like them and she wants to be in love with this man. And you see her make that choice of that love and that experience feels so important to her that she's willing to be mute, you know, and she goes to the land and she falls in love with this man and he's about to marry her and then she's manipulated again. Somebody starts using her voice to get something that they really want. I forget why that sea witch did that. Like, what was her motive? (laughs) But she steals this mermaid's voice and makes herself desirable. But there is some other reason, I think. I don't know. Maybe she just wanted what this girl had. I have no idea. But (laughs) I think it's an interesting thing to point out is we are sacrificing something in this example. For me, I grew up watching that movie. And so maybe in, in some ways, I'm thinking, well, my voice isn't important. I would rather be adored because of how beautiful I am and, and having legs, you know, like if you think about it in that sense, it's almost like women trading their, their intelligence, which is their voice or their personality, which is their voice or these, these things that make them so special. You know, Ariel the mermaid had this incredible singing voice, but she gave that up so that she could have the love of a man, right? So a feminist perspective on this might be like, that's bullshit. (laughs) But I think a lot of us are doing that. We are trading our voices, our authenticity, our true talents, our gifts for something else. And I think we are often trading it for love because social media makes us feel important. It makes us feel like people care. I see this so much on TikTok, Earlier, Jason, when you were talking about YouTube, TikTok right now is my YouTube. I go on TikTok for hours and I just watch videos. I'm very entertained by them. I'm educated by them. There's a lot of benefits to TikTok for me. I have posted videos on there and received a high number of likes for a low amount of effort. And I've received very minimal amount of likes for a ton of effort, right? I've experienced that a lot. And strategically, TikTok is something I I think a lot about from a marketing standpoint. But from a consumer standpoint, and then just like a social study, an experimental side of it, I do witness so many people on there getting a taste of going viral. Like Almost every day I see this. There's somebody on there who gets a viral video, and then all of their other posts are based on that viral video. Like, I'm not going to call out somebody, but there, 
I will give another vague example without stating exactly who this person is, but there's there's a user on TikTok who a few days ago I saw a video of theirs that was interesting. And there's a lot of interesting stuff on TikTok, so I didn't think that much of it. But then this person starts posting videos about the response they received. And this is very cliche on TikTok. Oh my God, my last video went viral. I never expected it. Thank you so much. And so there's a lot of like thank you videos, which are always interesting to me because somebody's sharing their surprise at how many people like them and their content. And you can see them like getting a taste. It's like when a kid tries chocolate for the first time or sugar, and you see that literal expression on their face of the joys of sugar, you know, <laughs> like, whoa, this exists. How exciting. It's like when if you ever try drugs or alcohol for the first time and you get that taste of feeling elated in a way that you've never experienced before, it's very exciting and triggering. And now we see that on social media and you see it a lot on TikTok because TikTok right now gives people a sense of power of and this ability to go viral very easily. It seems accessible, unlike other platforms like Instagram feels almost impossible to go viral on. But on TikTok, you're kind of like playing the slot machines and at any moment you could hit it big and you see other people around you. Just like It's like being at a casino. And I, they even said this in Social Dilemma because these apps are designed to replicate that feeling of a slot machine. like Literally, the programmers use the, the slot machine as inspiration for some of the social media networks. And I see this on TikTok because you go on TikTok and you swipe your finger down, just like you would pull the little handle on a slot machine. You swipe your finger down and it's suddenly a new video pops up. And is this going to be the video that makes you laugh? If this, is this the video that makes you cry? Is this the video that makes you feel something, right? And then as a creator on TikTok, every time you post something, you're rolling the dice. Is this the video that's going to make me go viral? And if I go viral, is this going to give me that sense of validation and worth that I've been craving? And again, going back to this creator on TikTok, she had a viral video. And every video that she's posted over the last few days has been based on that viral video. It's like, Hey guys, like look what this viral video did for me. I see this a lot with music artists on TikTok as well. There are people whose songs blow up on this app and suddenly they're getting all this attention. They have a following, they have likes, they're getting paid money because you can make money on TikTok now directly and indirectly. And now these musical artists are becoming literally famous on the charts, on the music charts. There was one example I saw recently of someone who was like number one on iTunes, all because of TikTok. Like This is very common, which makes this platform very appealing. I've seen people quitting their jobs because of TikTok. I've seen small businesses on Etsy selling out and suddenly making all of this money. It's so common that now you can go on there and be reminded day after day, that it's only a matter of time until you too go viral. It's only a matter of time until you too can quit your job. It's only a matter of time until you get all of this success that you've been wanting your whole life. All you have to do is keep playing the lottery, keep playing the slot machine, keep rolling the dice over and over again. And I think many of us are craving that. We're craving the money. We're craving the adoration. We're craving all of these feelings that we see other people getting. And it's a slippery slope because none of it's guaranteed. And just like the casino, 
there's more working against you than for you. And sure, you have higher chances, but you could lose a lot. And I think that's a huge tie into what you were saying, Jason. It's like you're basically putting a lot into this and not being guaranteed anything. And just like we see people who play the lottery, somebody could win millions of dollars and seem like their life is set. But the average person, I believe, I could be wrong, but maybe you could back me up on this, Jason. I'm pretty sure that statistically, people that win a lot of money in the lottery or at the casinos end up losing it just as quickly as, maybe not as quickly as they gained it, but they lose it very fast and their lives are no better because of that money because their lives have been based around not having that money. So that money doesn't really last that long because they don't know how to save it. They don't know how to keep it. And unless somebody's very strategic, it's just not going to be there very long. And they may end up even worse off than they were before because they owe taxes and (laughs) maybe they're depressed or maybe they thought that this would change their life and it didn't. And I think social media is very similar in a lot of ways to that. Yeah. So dig this. According to an organization called the National Endowment for Financial Education, close to 70% of people who win the lottery go bankrupt within several years. Bankrupt. Fascinating. There's an interesting article in the Washington Post about the myths about being a lotto winner. And it talks about here, this is absolutely fascinating. Listen to this. Winning the lottery will not make you happy. Harvard Medical School professor Sanjeev Chopra in a recent TED Talk said, winning a $20 million lottery ticket won't make you happier. He cited research showing that happiness fluctuates with positive or negative changes in circumstances in the short run, but that over time, people tend to revert to their own happiness set point. Worse than not improving people's lives, many stories abound of lottery winners destroying them. One winner of more than $300 million in the lotto, for example, believed that his generosity to his granddaughter funded her drug habit that eventually took her life. It's heavy. 2009 article in the International Journal of Psychiatry reported that cases of two German patients who were hospitalized for depression after each winning the equivalent of half of a million dollars. It's a long article. There's some really fascinating mythologies that goes into this idea, again, of quick fix, quick fix. If I just get a million followers, if I just win the lottery, if I just lose the weight, if I just have my face look a certain way, this is getting to the deepest, most manipulatable parts of our human psychology and our desire. Like I mentioned, those four dual basic urges. And I think it's not just enough, Whitney, to have the awareness that we're being manipulated. It's like, what do we do about it? We don't necessarily have any concrete answers per se. This just seems to be an ongoing really deeply passionate conversation that ties back into our mental health, our emotional wellness, our physical well-being, which is really the foundation of this podcast and our work with Wellevator, and this might get uncomfortable. It's just, if we know we're all being manipulated, and we all know that a lot of the algorithms and social media architecture and software has been designed specifically to manipulate us psychologically, what do we do about it? How do we have a healthier relationship with it? How do we get out of the proverbial matrix that wants to appeal to our weakest psychological points and try and help us buy into this thing of, if I just get the carrot, I'll feel better. And we know it's not true, but to your point, Whitney, you know, we also know that cigarette smoking is not good and tons of alcohol consumption and being sedentary and eating crappy food, but we do it anyway. So, boy, 
this gets to the deepest heart of of everything about being human and being in a world where we are bombarded by constant marketing telling us we just need this one thing and that'll be the key to make us feel better. But clearly the research shows it's almost like being a drug addict. It's almost like on a fundamental level being addicted. And I'm certainly reevaluating how I want to move forward with my social media usage, whether or not I want to get off of it completely. I know I mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I'm curious in the weeks that we've been kind of delving into this with, as we're going to get close to wrapping this episode, where are you at with it? Do you want to limit your usage? Do you want to be more mindful of your usage? Where are you at in this conversation around it? Do you have any further clarity around how you want to move forward with this relationship with social media? I'm in an experimental phase, and I suppose we always are. But for me, the experiment is First of all, making sure that my needs and priorities are taken care of. And if I can pay my bills, (laughs) I feel pretty good about life. And I can feel good even if I can't pay my bills. I certainly go through ebbs and flows financially. So number one, it's like, do I have the money that I literally need to survive and get by? And how is that tied into social media? Right. So for us as being content creators, I do often make money by promoting products and partnering with brands. And when those opportunities come to me, which they do almost every single day, there's a lot I evaluate. It's, okay, how does this money feel to me financially? Does this meet my worth? Does this meet the time and effort that goes into it? Am I taking less money than I know I'm worth? Why or why not? I just had an opportunity come up to me over the past week. And this brand just really said they didn't have big budget. And there are times when I would be happy to work with a brand with a low budget because it's ultimately not about the money. And there are times when I want to stick to my guns and ask for what I'm worth and won't accept anything less. And that's constantly fluctuating. And a lot of the times that's determined by how important a project is to me and how much money I need to make, right? So from financial standpoint, there's a big consideration for me when it comes to social media because this is part of our livelihoods, the work that we do. Now, of course, but I, I will say this because I guess you can't make this assumption. It's so important to me to make money ethically. I'm not interested, and clearly I've made this very clear in this episode. I'm not interested in faking things. I'm not interested in the quick fix. There are times when I feel maybe not desperate, but I border on feeling a little nervous about how I'm going to pay for something, right? And I have to make different decisions. But man, it's very rare, extremely rare for me to make a financial decision out of true desperation and do something that's out of alignment with my ethics because I don't want to live that way. You know what I mean? Uh, we talked about OnlyFans in an episode recently. And sometimes OnlyFans feels really appealing, but it just doesn't feel in alignment with my values and my ethics to go on OnlyFans and show videos of my body or my feet. You know, like, your feet are your body. But, you know, like there's a joke I've seen a couple of times on TikTok of people making all this money by showing their feet or by selling their panties or whatever else. And it's like, sure. I know I could make some money doing that, but that just doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't mean that it's not okay for other people to do that from my perspective. I just, I don't want to quote resort to that, right? And I think social media and the internet in general can draw us into all these questions about why we're doing something. So number one, 
these basic urges and needs, right? That you mentioned earlier, Jason, is the financial side of it. So I just try to evaluate my decisions based on how that impacts my finances. Then there's the side of my self-worth. It's like, am I posting something to get people to validate me? Do I need somebody to tell me that I'm pretty that day? Do I need somebody to tell me that I'm a good writer in my captions? Do I need somebody to tell me that I have a cool car or that I'm doing cool things or what, you know, like that type of validation? I think I was very drawn to that before. And there's part of me that still is. But when I check myself on it, I don't want to be dependent on that. So if I'm going to post on social media or interact with people on social media, I want it to come from heart. I want it to come from some place there in that moment when I'm doing something on social media, it feels good and it feels right. And I think each of us have a different relationship with what feels good and feels right. And ultimately, when I'm on social media, I just have to check in with myself. Am I doing this for a reason that feels good or right to me? You know what I mean? Am I saying yes to working on this project for money? Am I saying yes to working on this project because I believe in this brand or this person that I'm partnering with? And hopefully the answer will always be yes. Hopefully the answer is, nah, I don't really believe in it, but I'm going to do it because the money is good, right? Like that just does not feel good to me and that doesn't feel right to me. And in terms of consuming social media, which I think is another part of your question, Jason, it's like, why am I here? And I try to ask myself that as frequently as possible. I talk a lot about TikTok. As I mentioned, TikTok is a huge source of entertainment for me. I enjoy watching TikTok in the morning sometimes when I'm laying in bed. I enjoy watching it before I go to sleep. I enjoy watching it when I need a break for the day. I use that instead of YouTube, sometimes instead of Netflix or other platforms like that. I just go on TikTok and I feel fulfilled after X amount of time. I try to be mindful about how much time I spend on there. And I also really try to be careful about what I'm consuming. And social media has given us opportunities to kind of curate our feeds based on who we follow, based on the content we interact with. We can tell most of these platforms to mute somebody or something that we don't like. On TikTok, there's a feature called Not Interested that you can tap on. So if you see something you don't like or you don't want to see, you can say, I'm not interested. And Facebook does this too, actually. I don't know about Instagram, but you'll see less of it. So you can actually curate your social media experience. And usually I will stop using TikTok or Instagram or whatever platform when I have a moment that doesn't make me feel good. When I see a girl and I fall into the comparison trap based on our appearances, oh, that girl's prettier than me. I wish I looked like her. When I start having those thoughts, that's my cue to leave. (laughs) Or if I go on there and start feeling envious of somebody's possessions or experiences or relationships or whatever else it is, right? That's my cue. Or when I start feeling judgmental over somebody, that's my cue. I say, okay, I'm not coming from a place of kindness or compassion. I need to stop using this platform right now. And I'm going to go do something more productive with my time. Maybe I'll go read or meditate or exercise or create something that feels good to me. So I basically go through a checklist, whether I'm creating social media or I'm consuming social media. And for me, that helps me stay very balanced and sane with it. It's such a wonderful answer, Whitney. That was a lot more thorough than I expected. Not because 
I know you aren't well-versed in how to care for yourself, but that was just full of so many great tips that are a wonderful reminder for me, especially from an emotional side of things. You know, If I start to feel jealous, angry, spiteful, desirous of what somebody else has, I mean, that's an immediate cue. And I just, I want to thank you for giving me all those tips and those reminders. And, you know, speaking of one thing you you said as we're wrapping this episode, you mentioned about putting heart into your posts and coming from your heart. We actually have some really wonderful free resources for you, dear listener, on our website, wellevator.com. We have a free video series about how to put more heart into your social media. This is one of the many free resources along with some great eBooks about how to reclaim your sense of autonomy, your sense of heart, your sense of mental wellness around social media. This is something that Whitney and I have been passionate about many years as we are continuing to extend ourselves into the wellness space and including and not limited to digital wellness. So if you want to take advantage of diving into those free resources, again, go to our website. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And at the very top of that website, we have a free resources section. We have two video trainings and several ebooks that you can download and enjoy for free if you want to dive more into this digital wellness journey. With that, Whitney, are we are we going to be doing any of our FAQs with this episode? I forgot to ask at the beginning. Are we are we going to do any of the frequently asked queries? I did not plan on it, so I'm not prepared. <laughs> Next episode, then. Next episode. So with that. If you want to join us and dive deeper into the wellness and the digital wellness journey, you can follow us at Wellevator, again, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We're on all of the major social platforms that we mentioned in this episode, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter. We will be posting more content. We're still figuring out, I think, what we want to do with our social content for Wellevator to be totally transparent. We want to come from the heart. We don't want to be just part of the noise in the wellness community or parroting or regurgitating a lot of the same stuff that's already out there. So one of the things that we're re-examining too, not only our individual relationship to social media, but how we want to move forward with our brand Wellevator so we can put out unique and uplifting and authentic content for you to enjoy. So with that, thank you for joining us here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, and we will be back again soon in a couple days with another episode for you to digest. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.